in your heart this morning? Oh, Lord Jesus, how long? How long till we shout that glad song? You know, yesterday with all the fanfare and fireworks and, you know, it it is a great reason to celebrate when we have a memory of being set free from bondage, from uh, the rulership of, of an unwanted authority. But friends, what kind of celebration will it be when Jesus bursts through the clouds and he sets us free indeed? Oh, what are you going to shout? <laughs> what fireworks are big enough to light on that day? Huh? When the morning star comes and we get to go home for eternity. I'm thankful for that promise. It's not just pie in the sky, friends. It's not just wishful thinking. That's what the Bible calls the blessed hope. And we have that hope to look forward to today. Hey, what I want to do is open up the Word together. And I know that whenever we open up the Word, it's an opportunity for God to unsheath His living sword. It's an opportunity for Him to speak directly to our hearts. And so what I would want to encourage us to do is to pray before we study And you know, I've been thinking a lot about the power of prayer. In fact, in our Sabbath school, our Grounded in Prophecy Sabbath school there in Bellman Hall, we were talking about Daniel and his discipline of prayer, not just in emergent times, in emergency situations, but in times of the daily course of life. And he wasn't just one who had the habit of praying individually in his closet, but he had the habit of praying with his friends. Amen? There is value in prayer because we get to seek God. We have the opportunity to connect with Him and open up our hearts to God as to a friend. But do we know that we have the privilege of praying together at times too? In fact, this afternoon, as you've already heard, 4 p.m., United Prayer. Our area churches are being invited here to Parkwood once a quarter. Every uh, first Sabbath of the quarter, we're, we're going to different churches where we realize, hey, we're not just praying for ourselves individually. We're not just praying for our own local congregation, but we're praying for our territory because God has plans for this territory. Amen. And so area-wide, uh, those churches are going to be joining here, not here in the sanctuary, but here in the youth chapel. So please, I hope you would make it a priority as I do. But right now, let's have the opportunity to pray together. Can you find someone next to you, in front of you, behind you, just to pray with each other, for each other? And again, if you don't feel comfortable with this, we're not going to twist your arm into this, so you can just bow your head quietly where you are. But let's find someone that we can pray for, that God would speak directly to today, okay? On your mark, get set, go.
turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Oh, Father, would you please turn our eyes to Jesus? And as we look to him, may the things of this world grow strangely dim. May the voices of this week grow strangely silent. May our ears be wide open to what the Spirit says to the churches. We thank you for the opportunity to study. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be the one to lead us and guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name, let the family say, Amen. Amen. Open with me your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're in the fifth part of our series on the, the messages to the seven churches in Revelation. Let him hear part five, intolerable tolerance, intolerable tolerance. We're going to Revelation chapter two. This is the fourth church in the series of seven here. And this is a church that it resides in a little city called Thyatira. If you're in Revelation chapter two, can you go ahead and say amen? amen. All right, you found it. I found it too. You may need a pencil and paper or something just to take notes on, scribble down things that you want to to hang on to throughout the week. But in Revelation chapter 2, we're beginning in verse 18. And this is to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thyatira. What was it like in Thyatira? Thyatira, it, it wasn't a city that had much to boast about. It was relatively small, relatively of little political importance, religious importance. But it did have uh, quite a great deal of commerce going on. It was a commercial city. It was filled with merchants, trade here and there because of its geographical position in the middle of a valley. Trade routes often ran through there. In fact, it was known for its dyeing industry, not, not passing away, not expiring, but dye, D-Y-E. Uh, there were certain routes in the valley that lent itself to purple dyes. You may remember um, Lydia in the book of Acts who was from Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple. Okay, she was a seller of purple cloths. And so Thyatira was a commerce city. It was a trade center, and it was often known for its many trade guilds, kind of like a union of sorts. But you had to be part of these guilds in order to really have a successful uh, business, a successful, to be a successful merchant. And um, this actually was a problem for the Christians in Thyatira. This became problematic because the trade guilds of that time, as it says in some commentaries I've looked at, the trade guilds, they actually had expectations for those who belonged to those guilds to attend pagan festivals. And these expectations were, uh, it required them to attend festivals that were held in pagan temples to share a common meal which consisted of meats sacrificed to the patron gods of the guild. Very interesting. 
This isn't uh, something that maybe we're really familiar with, but maybe we are familiar with certain expectations of the industry, certain expectations of our employer or our co-workers that may go against the grain of what we know to be true from the Word of God. Do you resonate with that at all? Maybe some of us can resonate with that. And we are familiar with these struggles on the work front at times. And this is a difficult thing to do because when that happens, it's hard because we don't often want to rock the boat, right? We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to stand out. How do we, how do we maintain our citizenship yet also maintain our convictions with God? And this is a difficult balance for them to strike. And so Jesus wanted to speak to this church. What would he say? What would he say? Go with me, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. If you're there, say amen. All right. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. I'm reading from the New King James today. New King James. The Bible says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things says who? The Son of God. I want you to notice this is actually the only time that phrase is used in all of Revelation. Right here. Emphasizing the divinity of the messenger. This is coming from the Son of God. Who is this Son of God? These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a what? Like a flame of fire is what my Bible says. Maybe yours says a blazing flame. And his feet like fine brass. Here, as Jesus begins to address this church, he wants them to remember two things about himself. Well, maybe we should say three. One, he is the divine Son of God. Second, he's got eyes like what? Eyes like fire. Whoa. <laughs> What kind of emotion is that to strike in our hearts and minds? Eyes like fire. What that tells me is that, remember where Jesus is in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is in the midst of what? Do you remember? The lampstands, right? He is the high priest who is tending over each of these candles that are, that are flaming and flickering and going hither and thither. And Jesus wants to make sure these flames don't go out. So when we see that Jesus is reminding this church, hey, I've got eyes like a flame of fire, he's saying, my eyes are on you. My eyes have not forgotten you. My focus is so fixed that if you were to look into them, you'd see yourself. Wow. Jesus is intently interested in your well-being. And in fact, there are times in Scripture where eyes are a, they're associated with one's understanding. They're associated with one's insight and perception. And so Jesus' understanding is penetrating. His, his, he is not oblivious to what this church in Thyatira is going through. His eye is upon them as it is upon us. Amen? And so here is Jesus. His eye is upon us. His eye is like a flame of fire. He knows us inside and out. He knows what's going on in our situations. And it says that his feet are like fine brass. Something that the, the merchants in Thyatira were probably familiar with as they traded different coins and this and that. His feet were like fine brass. This tells me of his uncompromising stance and strength. This tells me of Jesus' uncompromising stability. He is tried and tested and true just like fine brass is. He is a, one who stands upon integrity alone. And so here is Jesus who knows what we're up to, and he is one who stands for integrity. And what is this Son of God going to say to us? What is he going to say to Thyatira? Verse 19, he begins, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are what? 
are more than the first. So is this a good description, yes or no? As Jesus is assessing the church, as he is appraising the church, he knows of their works, of their service, of their perseverance. He knows of their faith. This is an active church. This is a working church. In fact, this is not just a working church. This is an improving church. This is a growing church. Their ministries are reaching farther and wider. Their effectiveness is growing deeper and broader. But we know that an active church does not always equate to a completely faithful church. And here's where the description gets even more pointed. In verse 20, notice the problem that Jesus wants them to be aware of. In verse 20, the Bible says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Let's stop right here. And we'll get to these details in just a moment, but let's stop right here. There apparently is a threat to the church. There is something that that Jesus wants this church to be aware of, and it's not necessarily pressure from outside like the, 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 the Roman governments. It's not necessarily pressure from the outside like Jewish opponents. No, this is pressure actually from the inside. There is someone that is being given an Old Testament name, and that name is what? Did you catch it? Jezebel. Jezebel, who claims to be a prophetess, meaning claims to have divine authority, claims to be a messenger from God. Now, Jezebel, what do you remember about Jezebel from the Old Testament? Does anybody? She, she, killed, she killed the prophets of God and basically groomed the prophets of Baal. Yeah, she was heavily responsible for turning the, the loyalties of God's people from the true God to false God. And so there is apparently a teaching influence within the church at Thyatira that is being allowed to spread its influence. And this this individual, whether it's an individual, whether it's a group of individuals, what we know is that they are supplanting the worship of the true God. And that's why Jesus uses the term Jezebel to be an apt description of this, this deceptive influence. Now notice with me, It says this in verse 20, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach, and my Bible says seduce. What does your Bible say there? Seduce? Okay. Some versions say lead astray. And as I looked at that word, seduce, what does it mean that this this individual or group of teachers was, was trying to do? Seduce. In the book of Revelation, it's actually used seven other times. But all seven other times, it's referring to either the devil himself, the Antichrist beast, or the beast from the earth in Revelation chapter 13. Meaning that this Jezebel influence is devilishly deceptive. Do you follow that today, yes or no? It's not as though this Jezebel influence was, uh, was prominently proclaiming itself as, hey, I'm a false teacher. Okay, so follow me. No, no, no. This was a prophetess claiming divine authority and doing it under the radar, so to speak. Devilishly deceptive. And what is, what is it that she is doing? It's because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants, Jesus says, my servants, the ones that are faithful to me. I kind of sense a, a, a sense of anger in the voice of Jesus. Hey, these are my servants, and you're seducing them. Uh, this Jezebel influence is misleading these honest-hearted believers. 
who seduce my servants, and then notice what it is that she seduces them to do. It says in verse 20, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. In fact, these are the very things, these are the very things that the trade guilds were expecting of their guild members. That when they brought them in for their pagan festivities, uh, they were expected to, to let down their guard. They were expected to practice these things that were more of the world and rather than the word. And so Jezebel apparently is a divine teacher, a divine prophetess, who is saying that these things are okay. And she's misleading. This group is misleading the faithful servants of God. If you were Jesus, how would you feel about this? <laughs> probably not so good. You'd probably want to remind this church that you've got eyes like a flame of fire, right? <laughs> so there's an accommodation going on. The trade guilds are, they're probably, uh, the people in Thyatira are probably motivated by sustaining their employment, doing whatever it takes to not rock the boat, doing whatever it takes to maintain your livelihood. And maybe when it comes to our employment, and maybe when it comes to our work, we're not tempted to give up our sexual purity. Maybe you are. Maybe in your line of work, you're not tempted to break the, the commandment that says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Maybe you are. But when it comes to our contemporary culture, maybe these things aren't being asked of us or expected of us, but there are expectations that do actually call upon us to break God's law especially when it comes to Sabbath-keeping. Are, are you following me today? Yeah. And so, you know, we wouldn't think, we wouldn't think to take up a job that requires us to lie. We wouldn't think to take up a job that requires us to murder. We right? I, I pray. Uh. <laughs> but for some reason, it seems as though that when it comes to employment that, um, that maybe requires us to fudge a little here, a little there on the Sabbath commandment, we find it easier to do. And friends, can I just speak straight this morning? Jesus wants you to stand for him. This is his day. Not ours, but it's his. And maybe some of us find it difficult. How can we actually maneuver that? How, how do we actually make that happen? Friends, he is the one that stands on feet like burnished burnished, excuse me, burnished brass, and he can make you stand on solid ground too. If that's something that you'd like to counsel with me about, I would be happy to pray with you, to counsel with you, to even give you a literature to read up on, a letter to take to your employer. The law is actually on our side in these things. So we have nothing to fear, especially when Jesus is on our side. Amen? Amen. 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 But as, as this church in Thyatira, they were feeling the pressure of going this way or that way, and when it, especially when it came to, to sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. Now, when these, these might be categorized as simple lifestyle issues, right? These, these might be categorized as things that, hey, you know, there's gray area there. But the reality is that lifestyle issues affect your spiritual walk with Jesus. I mean, Daniel, just going back to the example of Daniel, because our Sabbath school class in, in Bellman Hall has been going through this, Daniel was a man who stood true to his spiritual commitments, but he also stood true to his physical commitments. His, his spiritual disciplines were, were integrally related to his 
to his physical disciplines. And sometimes we think that, you know, um, what I do with my body is one thing, but what I, my relationship with God is unaffected. But friends, biblical Christianity, excuse me, biblical Christianity is not compartmentalized. Do you follow me? Biblical Christianity is not, I have this life and then I have this life. <laughs> I, I think I've said this in the past. Biblical Christianity is more like pancakes and not waffles. Because when the grace of Jesus is poured on your life like syrup, it affects everything and not just one square here or there. I know. It's not good to talk about food right before potluck. <laughs> but here's the truth. God wants us to be wholly his, completely his. And that's the word of God. Now this is a sentiment, this is a pressure that was faced by Thyatira, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't unfamiliar. In fact, the church in Ephesus, you may remember a few Sabbaths ago when we looked at Ephesus, they were faced with uh, opponents called the Nicolaitans. They held similar teachings, but it says of Ephesus that they wouldn't tolerate that. They wouldn't hold to those doctrines. In Pergamos, last week, we looked at this, this church who was facing this struggle uh, of, of Balaam, right? And Balaam was leading them into these kinds of similar situations. And it says of Pergamos that there were some, there were some in the church who held to this. But Thyatira is a little bit different in which the Bible says that, where is it in verse 20? Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow, because you allow that woman Jezebel. In other words, Thyatira did not refuse it. Thyatira didn't just have a few people who held to it. Thyatira actually allowed it. And so it was compromise that was full-blown corruption. This is a little bit different. It's similar to the other churches, but it's different in the sense that they allowed it. The Greek word there, allow, it means to let alone, to permit, to neglect, to just say, all right, you've got your own room. <laughs> Have your own way. And here's where Thyatira fell, similar to Pergamus' struggle with compromise, but because of their wholesale neglect to address the situation, this compromise had become full-blown corruption. It is this tolerance that is apparently intolerable to Jesus. Let him hear part five, intolerable tolerance. It's when we allow sin to fester in our very midst. Compromise is one thing, but when we allow it for an extended period of time, there needs to be a line that is drawn. And so what can be done? What can be done when compromise has fully blown into corruption? How do we stem the tide of this kind of corruption? What does Jesus do about it? In verse 21, go with me there. Revelation chapter 2, verse 21, the Bible says, notice how God responds here. It's all about God's response. Verse 21 and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. So here, first I want us to notice, just first and foremost, that, that in the following verses, God is showing an appropriate response. But I want us to notice that this is all God. It's all about what God is doing about it. Why? Why is it all what God is doing? Well, probably because Thyatira hasn't lifted a finger thus far, okay? And so here is God. He's saying, this is what I'm going to do about it. And it says in verse 21, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. So God's response, number one, he allots time for repentance. He allots time for sorrow. He allots time for us to come to our senses. Okay? In verse 22, 
Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. So now repentance goes a little bit further. There's an intensification of God's response here. So the second response is that God warns that the convenience that they're hoping for, that the convenience that they hope to achieve by compromise is actually going to be turned against them. In fact, that word there for sickbed in the New King James, it says, indeed I will cast her into a sickbed. In other places in the New Testament, this is translated as a mat. You saw uh, the the story of, of the paralytic on a bed. This is the same Greek word. And so it's almost as if God is saying, hey, I'm going to stop you in your tracks. You're going to be paralyzed. This influence will not perpetrate any longer. And in verse 23, God's response gets even more serious. In verse 23, the Bible says, I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Is this serious, yes or no? There is a tolerance that apparently God finds intolerable. And what I want us to notice first is that this is God's response and not ours. Did you catch that? This is God's intervention. He's saying that he will do this. But I also want us to notice the effect or the desired purpose of that last stage of seriousness there. In verse 23, did you catch why God is doing this? It says, I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Apparently, the hoped-for purpose, the hoped-for effect of really drawing the line in the sand is so that all would know something about Jesus. What is that something, according to verse 23? What is it that Jesus wants us to know when he calls this thing into judgment? What does he want us to know about him? That he is... He is the one who searches the minds and hearts. Now, friends, I I would submit to you that this is a redemptive purpose. That when God meets out judgment, it's always for the sake of saving. Do you believe that today, yes or no? That whenever God moves, he is actually seeking the best interest of his people. And here, in fact, the same is true. That when he does this, when he carries this out, he wants us to know that he's the one who searches the hearts and minds. How is that redemptive? Because I guarantee that maybe there are some of us who, when we even consider this, whoa, God knows the very deep things of my heart. God searches the inside and out. He knows everything that's going on there. There's a little bit of tremble there. Am I right? There's a little bit of tremble there. How is that a redemptive thing? How is that an assuring thing? Well, friends, can I remind you of one psalm It's Psalm 139. Psalm 139, the psalmist says, you have known me inside and out. You are well acquainted with all of my ways. If I go here, I cannot hide. If I go there, I cannot hide. Yet this is not a psalm of fear. This is a psalm of awe. Can you hold your finger here in Revelation chapter 2 and turn with me to Psalm 139? Turning your Bibles to Psalm 139. This is powerful. 
Psalm 139. Psalm is about halfway through your Bible. Psalm 139. We're going to go to Psalm 139, verse 1. Psalm 139, verse 1. And we can read verse 2 and 3 also. If you're there, say, I found it. All right. Psalm 139. The Bible says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought from afar off. Okay, so here's someone who knows that God is the one who searches hearts and minds. And what kind of tone of voice is he speaking with? Notice if you just skip a little bit later on in the chapter, it says in verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance before yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. And here is the psalmist in awe of the fact, not in fear, but in awe of the fact that God knows him inside and out. And notice verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Apparently, apparently the church in Thyatira had neglected the reality that God knows them intimately inside and out. And this led them to a free-for-all of sorts. But when we place ourselves in the shoes of the psalmist who says, God, you know me inside and out. How precious are your thoughts to me? Could it be that this awareness actually keeps us in line with the way and will of God? Notice, by the way, how it turns from a recognition that God searches to a prayer that God searches. Go to the last two verses of Psalm 139. It's not just that David is aware that God knows us inside and out. He actually pleads that he would keep knowing him inside and out. Verse 23, the Bible says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. When was the last time you invited God to search you? To know you inside and out? And notice why. Notice why David prays this. Verse 24, and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Friends, sometimes there's a fear that God would find us out. Friend, he already knows. <laughs> he already knows. And what the psalmist has come to is saying, God, I give you the green light to know me so I can know that too. To know me so I can be led in the way everlasting. The church in Thyatira, and whenever we fall into the same rut, the church in Thyatira neglected the, the reality that God is the one who searches, that God is the one who knows us inside and out. And the only reason why he does this is yes, so that he can see the sin, but even more so, so that he could save us from the sin. This is why Jesus searches. He searches to find that which is destroying us so he can save us. 
Jesus is our merciful high priest. He is the one whose eyes, yes, they're like a flame of fire. They have a penetrating insight and understanding into our lives. Why? So that we would not be saved in our sin, but from our sin. This is the ministry of Jesus. Even when he calls it so plain and clear and carries about serious judgment as he did and as he warned of to the church of Thyatira. And the whole purpose of that is a redemptive one so that we would come to know, yes, you are the one who knows me inside and out, and I will keep giving you permission to seek me inside and out, to search me, to try me, to know my inmost thoughts, so that if there is any wicked way in me, you can deliver me from that and lead me in the way everlasting. This is what Jesus wanted Thyatira to experience. So go back with me. Go back to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Finish the rest of this message here. As Jesus is winding this up, he's, he's kind of getting straight to the point. Revelation chapter 2. By the way, this is actually the longest of the seven churches, or longest of the messages to the seven churches. He spends the most time with this church that has gone into full-blown corruption tells you that Jesus doesn't want to gloss over things. He's patient with us. And in verse 24, verse 24, now he begins to address the faithful. Now he begins to address those who, yes, they have allowed the Jezebelian influence, if you want to call it that. But now he addresses what they ought to do. What then are we to do? Well, first of all, if the fault was that Thyatira allowed Jezebel's influence, the, implicate, or the implied instruction would be, don't allow it, right? Don't tolerate it. Don't just ignore that it exists. Don't just hide your eyes to the fact that it's there. The implied instruction would be to be honest with it. So how is it then? How does Jesus instruct this church? In verse 24, it says, Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, ooh, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, verse 25, but hold fast what you have till I come. What was the instruction according to verse 25? Hold fast. Hold fast what you have until I come. I want you to notice what Jesus' instruction is not. What he did not tell them to do. He did not tell them to go find Jezebel and cast her into a sickbed. He did not tell them to go find Jezebel and tell her that her children are going to die. Children, by the way, symbolic imagery here. Children are those who ascribe, uh, those who are produced by the spiritual adultery. And so Jesus does not tell the faithful to go find the unfaithful and weed them out. Why? Because I believe that's the job of the high priest. Only the one who sees the heart can judge the heart. Do we follow that today? And this is what I pick up from Jesus' instruction here because he doesn't tell them to go find Jezebel. No, he tells them, verse 25, but hold fast what you have till I come. The burden that he wants them to have, he, the burden that he wants his faithful to have is to hold fast because often the best way to dispel darkness is to admit light. 
Let me say that again. The best way to dispel darkness is to admit light. It's not to badmouth the darkness. The best way to rebuke is often to hold to righteousness. The best way to dispel darkness is to admit light. And Jesus says, verse 25, but hold fast what you have till I come. And then he gives them promises. Verse 26, and he who overcomes, he who holds fast, he who holds fast what, I, what you have until I come, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Notice this promise, verse 27. He shall rule with them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Whoa, what is it that Jesus is promising? According to verse 26, he's saying, hey, you get to rule with me. By the way, in Revelation, where is that picture of God's people ruling with Jesus? sitting on thrones with Jesus. Anybody remember? In the millennium, Revelation chapter 20, after the second coming and the righteous are taken to heaven, we sit on thrones in judgment. Wow. So what Jesus is promising is, hey, look, you haven't been practicing judgment very well here, <laughs> but if you do now, Hold fast what you have to like. Not allow the presence of Jezebel. I guarantee you, you're going to have rulership with me in heaven. It's a promise of rulership with him uh, in eternity. And then in, in verse 29, I believe it is verse 29, and I will give him the what? The morning star. Do you know in scripture, the morning star is actually a description of Jesus himself. <laughs> He's saying, I'm going to give you rulership and I'm going to give you relationship with me. We will have Jesus himself, the morning star. And this to a people, maybe they've been accommodating because they didn't want to lose influence. They didn't want to lose their relationships with the merchants and the trade guilds and things like this. And so Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's not worth it. It's not worth it. When you hold fast to what you have till I come, I will give you true rulership and leadership. I will give you true influence. I will give you true relationship with me. Wow, Jesus satisfies everything we need. <laughs> and in verse 29, as he ends with the other messages, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you have an ear to hear today? Have you heard what Jesus has said about intolerable tolerance? Simple questions as we wrap this up today. First, what Jezebelian influence pervades in your life? <laughs> what Jezebelian influence are we allowing, neglecting, and tolerating? And as you search your heart, my simple appeal would be that each day this week, you pray that God would search your heart. Here's the appeal. Take-home challenge. Memorize Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. We read it just a few minutes ago. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my inmost thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. How many of you are willing to commit that to memory this week? Amen? Amen? Okay. Praise the Lord. Now, here's the second take-home challenge. Along with that, I guess it's maybe part of that. 
memorize it, but every time you review it, pray it. Make it your prayer. Oh God, search me. I know you're the one who searches our hearts and minds. And you do this not just to put me in fear, but to put me in awe so that all my life can be open before you. Because the sin that I sometimes treat so casually is actually what destroys me, and you want to redeem me from that. Will you memorize it and pray it this week? Is that your desire? Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Father, this is our longing, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Lord, we confess there are ways in which we have been playing Jezebel. Oh God, Forgive us for our callousness to the things that you uphold so dearly and value. Lord, I pray that there would be no compartmentalizing of our faith commitments, but that our biblical Christianity would be such that it impacts the whole of our lives, our physical habits, our purity, our integrity, Father, I pray that our relationship with you would deepen throughout this week, especially as we commit this simple prayer to memory. Lord, I pray that every time we review this, whether it's a certain time in the morning or in the evening or throughout the day, if we put it on, on a card that we keep uh, in our car or on our bathroom mirror, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that every time we lock eyes on that, every time our mind dwells upon that, that it would be a, a true and sincere prayer. And so right now we're praying it, God, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my inmost thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in us, God. And lead us in the way everlasting. Thank you, God, for being the one who searches. That it's you and you alone. Lord, you're the one who created us. You're the one who knows us inside and out. And so it's upon your, your throne, upon your mercy, upon your grace that we cast ourselves today. Thank you for being the one who not just saves us in our sin, but from our sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Let the family say, amen, amen. Happy Sabbath, friends. You're welcome to join us for our fellowship lunch. And then again at 4 p.m., our united prayer in the youth chapel. God bless you.